Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. I hope you're all doing well. Be sure to check out this week's Watch with Jen and Friends episode number 13 with Peter Avellino. It was a lot of fun to talk with one of my first friends on Twitter about movies and gotten some great feedback and so is Peter on it. So we really hope that you enjoy it. Once again, there has been just so much in the news right now that is far more important than movie recommendations. But I'm here to offer you a little bit of distraction. Just a heads up that this is going to be kind of a truncated episode, a shorter one. I have a number of due dates this week and deadlines next week. So I'm working on a lot of projects, a lot of articles, and don't really have the time to put out a mega long episode. And I am recommending a couple that I think either do well, the less you know going in, and also a few that are pretty popular or were at the time they were released, but you may have forgotten about or aren't aware that they're streaming. So I think it's a nice balance and I'm not really talking more than a few minutes about each film, which is actually, I think, okay, especially with these titles. And it's probably a good thing this week because I'm battling what I'm hoping is allergies, although ever since I got that COVID, maybe COVID or not COVID thing that I had, I've been a little more run down than usual, kind of losing my energy faster than I normally would. So I'm just keeping an eye on that. Like I said, I'm thinking it's probably just allergies allergies or asthma or whatever, but definitely keeping an eye on it. So this week between working too much and then being a bit run down, my voice probably isn't the strongest. So I do hope you'll forgive any weird little vocal qualities that show up here and there. Additionally, I was talking with a few of my subscribers and also looking at the number of clicks per episode. And of course, now that the podcasts are available on Apple and Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc., I don't have the traffic or the click data for all of those. But after speaking with a few people, I'm thinking that because I'm recommending five movies every week, it's a little too much. So I'm planning on releasing episodes of Watch with Jen every other week and also then weaving in just a few random theme episodes or shorter uploads like this one. Today isn't terribly, terribly long that are maybe dealing with certain topics, ones that my patrons have suggested because I'm starting to get patrons on the higher end tiers where they can choose topic ideas for things for me to discuss on these shows or also letterbox lists and Twitter threads. There's all kinds of different things that you can find on the Patreon tiers, so feel free to move up and down them or let me know if you have any suggestions. Obviously, I can't promise to do all of them, but I'm always interested in what you guys have to say. And then in between Watch With Jen episodes where I recommend 
a bunch of movies to you guys and these theme episodes that might be a bit shorter or popping up here and there. I am also going to season throughout my Watch with Jen and Friends episodes, which I believe are the most popular. And I always enjoy having conversations with movie lovers and writers, actors, artists. So I am eager to bring those people to you as well. And be sure to look back into the earlier episodes because like I mentioned with Peter Avellino was number 13. So do check those out as well. But without further ado, let me go ahead and jump into this week's movies. Produced by Dino and Martha De Laurentiis, our first film is one that is perfect for fans of 1971's Duel from director Steven Spielberg that was made first for ABC and then released as a feature. That great movie, which is set on a highway as a trucker follows a man home for a white knuckle ride. It is a crackerjack thriller. It's awesome. Paved the way for several films that followed, including a number of copycats, also Joyride, and this next one that was released in 1997, Breakdown, which is now available on Showtime. It was directed and co-written by Jonathan Mostow. He wrote it along with Sam Montgomery in the movie, which starred Kurt Russell and Kathleen Quinlan. The two play a couple that are driving cross-country in their new Jeep from Boston to San Diego. Along the way, they almost collide with a beat-up truck, and at a gas station shortly thereafter, the truck driver confronts them, and the two men get into a heated argument. They soon drive off, but then after that, their Jeep breaks down on a desolate road. When a passing big rig trucker, played by the outstanding character actor J.T. Walsh, offers to help the couple, Amy, which is Kathleen Quinlan, goes with him to go to a diner close by and call for help, leaving her husband Jeff, Kurt Russell, with the Jeep. But after she leaves, he realizes that the battery in their Jeep had been sabotaged with disconnected wires, So he fixes it and goes to the diner where they were supposed to be, but nobody has seen his wife. Stopping the trucker, who suddenly claims that he has never seen Jeff or Amy, a sheriff helps him and searches the entire truck, but doesn't find Amy. Frustrated, Kurt Russell goes back to the diner where a mentally challenged man comes up to him and tells him that he did see Amy and she left with men, but he can't go to the cops because he says they're involved. Can Jeff find her? As he goes through this convoluted cat and mouse game, he gets involved in a bigger and bigger mess and mystery, and it is just a terrific thriller that really puts you into the mindset of the character because you are trying to fight alongside Jeff to figure out what happened to Amy before it's too late. Clocking in at a respectable 93 minutes in which there are no frames wasted. The movie received some really great reviews in its 
original release. I remember seeing it at the movie theater when it opened and being very impressed by it, but then also loving how many of my favorite critics enjoyed it as well, including Roger Ebert, who really recommended it. One of those movies where the less you know going in, the better. Breakdown was not only Jonathan Masto's biggest film to date, but it actually was his best movie that he has made in all the years since. He followed up Breakdown with U571, that underwhelming submarine movie, Terminator 3, which I actually don't hate as much as some of the newer Terminators, and also Surrogates, which was a definite misfire science fiction movie with Bruce Willis. So when you look at his filmography, you realize that Breakdown was the high point. And I think a lot of its success is owed not only to the great everyman performance by Kurt Russell, which makes his character universally relatable, but also just how efficiently plotted it is. And the film makes sure that it's never overstaying its welcome. There's no bloated sequences that you feel could have been cut out. Everything that happens in the movie is vital to getting Kurt Russell's Jeff from point A to point B. The film came after another one that I really enjoyed in the 90s with Kurt Russell called Executive Decision, which I would really recommend that movie as well. Well, the 90s kind of gave Kurt Russell the opportunity to play an action hero, and he really rises to the occasion. And I think part of the reason why Executive Decision and Breakdown remains so entertaining watch after watch is because he's just playing a guy who could be your neighbor, your coworker, or somebody you would actually know rather than some overamped 80s action star who probably spends too much time at the gym and is a little bit over the top. So I think Kurt Russell kind of offered this nice alternative to that in the 90s. And both of these movies, but especially for starters, Breakdown, are really worth seeking out. The second movie I'd like to talk about is also from the 90s, and it's hopefully one that you've either heard of or maybe even seen. It's perfect for film lovers and belonged in that amazing year of 1999, which found outstanding film after outstanding film releasing. The movie that I'm talking about today is a straight-up comedy. It's a satire. It is Bowfinger, and it is now available on Star's channel. The movie was directed by Frank Oz, the legendary voice of such memorable characters as Yoda and Miss Piggy. He was a performer, then turned filmmaker. He directed such classic comedies as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, House Sitter, In and Out, and The British Death at a Funeral, which is just absolutely hilarious. If you have not seen that, add that one to your list as well. Bowfinger was written by Steve Martin, who also stars in the film, and it was produced by Brian Grazer. In the movie, Steve Martin plays a Z-grade movie producer named Bobby Bowfinger, which is just an unparalleled name. It is so silly and so singular, and it's just perfect. Bobby Bowfinger has saved up money to direct a film his entire life. And given that he's like, you know, middle-aged-ish, 
on the plus side of middle age might be slightly alarming that the only money he has to his name is $2,184, but the way he tells it, that is exactly what you need to make a movie. So he's got this money that he wants to use to pay for a production. He found a script, which was written by an accountant. He hires a camera operator who can check out studio-owned equipment on the sly, employs some undocumented immigrants to work as the camera crew, and also taps a few actors who are super hungry for work, including a just-off-the-bus Heather Graham, who appears at the audition and just steals the scene. She seems very sweet and naive, but as the movie goes along, you start to realize that in All About Eve fashion, she is more calculating than you realize. In addition to Heather Graham, he hires a lookalike to the top action star, Kit Ramsey, who's played by Eddie Murphy in dual roles. So he plays this Will Smith-like Hollywood action star, and then he also plays the look-alike who gets hired on Bobby Bowfinger's movie, whose name is Jeff. Jeff is to be the stand-in for Kit Ramsey. Bobby tells his cast and crew that Kit really is in their film, but he's doing it covertly on the fly, and he attributes this, as he explains to them, as Kit is so method, and this is his way of shooting movies. He doesn't want to see a camera. He might act like he doesn't even know you, that kind of thing. But really, the man has no idea that he is going to be in this movie because he never agreed to it. So Bowfinger and his crew just follow him around Hollywood, and he hires his actors to just walk up, say their lines, and the results are just absolutely hilarious. Like Christine Baranski following him in a parking garage, which we also see was partly shot by a dog walking around in high heels. So there's some really good Steve Martin comedic gags going on. Unfortunately, as we discover, Ramsey is a paranoid, narcissistic man to begin with, and he works with an organization called Mindhead, which is probably a little bit of a stand-in for Scientology and New Age medicine, just sort of blended together. And while we learn more about his hang-ups and his issues as the film continues, this whole unorthodox situation where people are walking up to him and saying just the strangest things ever because it's a science fiction movie they're acting in pretty much sends him right over the edge. Bowfinger overall, though, is a truly inventive comedy that celebrates the love of movies in the same spirit that, say, Tim Burton's wonderful Ed Wood did as well, and that was released in 1994 which incidentally was probably the other best year of the 90s as far as film releases go. And although you can kind of read between the lines of some of the people and places and things that Steve Martin is making fun of, it's kind of an open secret that perhaps the Heather Graham character was inspired by Anne Heche, who he had dated for years and you can tell had some feelings that she was maybe a bit opportunistic that pays off on the screen. It's not still though as cynical or stereotypical as it sounds. 
because these are just old cliches about the film business. And in the end, this motley crew of individuals making Chubby Rain are together just because they're so passionate about movies and that's what they want to do even if it's just to release a $2,184 movie. So in a sense it's using the same let's put on a show mentality that Hollywood has loved to explore as far back as the 1930s in both some melodramas but then also the musicals of the Golden age going right into the 40s and 50s, the Andy Hardy, Judy Garland movies, and more. And this just takes it in a more satirical direction. I think it also benefits so much from the performances. Everybody in this movie is funny. You've got not only Steve Martin in an outstanding, just scene-stealing Eddie Murphy, but you have a really fun performance by Heather Graham, Christine Baranski, and Terry stamp, just to name a few. And it's a warm, sunny movie that I think is perfect to be watched in summertime right now. Released in 2001, our third film is Mostly Martha, which you can find right now on Canopy, which is available through your library. Written and directed by Sandra Nettlebeck, the German film was remade in the United States as No Reservations in 2007, which starred Catherine Zeta-Jones and Aaron Eckhart. And it also inspired a Spanish film named Chef Special as well. A moving and funny at times, also bittersweet tale of of a workaholic chef who's in for a rude awakening when her life takes a sudden detour. The film centers on the workaholic Martha Klein, who is so addicted to her job as a chef she relates to everyone through food and has some routine run-ins with the customers at the gourmet upscale restaurant that she works at, so much so that her boss knowing he can't really fire her because she's that talented, but also knowing she really needs some help there, asks her to see a shrink to work on her interpersonal problems as part of her requirement for holding down the job. The only issue is that when she goes to a shrink, all she does there is just continue to describe these mouth-watering dishes that she makes and rhapsodize about food. So, Make sure you watch this with a snack or maybe with dinner because it will definitely make you hungry. Life takes a sudden turn for her though when her beloved sister is killed in a car accident which leaves her with her eight-year-old niece, Lena. Unsure how to care for the young girl, when Lena first arrives, she is so depressed and in shock from what happened that she's unwilling to eat, which drives her aunt absolutely batty because that is how she relates to everyone. Lena's absentee Italian father has been out of the picture for years, and Martha, not knowing what she should do after her sister's passing, sets out to try to find him. In the meantime, her good friend and sous chef has to go on maternity leave, and 
Martha is shocked when her boss hires Mario, a handsome Italian man who adds jazz music to the kitchen that she tries to keep very cool and quiet and zen-like and orderly. He's very conversational and they butt heads right away, but he's the first one to get Lena to eat food, which of course is going to drive Martha nuts. Gradually, predictably, but very sweetly, a romance develops between Martha and Mario. And while yes, some of it is indeed a little bit protracted and you can see where it is headed and the trope about a workaholic woman needing to change is something we see all the time. I mean, it basically makes up every single made-for-Hallmark TV movie or Lifetime movie around the holidays. This is still a sensitive, warm, thoughtful movie that is hard not to love. The cast is extremely good, especially Martina Gedek and Sergio Castellito, who play Martha and Mario respectively. The film was shot in Germany and Italy, and it's just a nice, classy, polished, warm film. It was funny, I've borrowed my DVD to a handful of people over the years, and I always hear the same thing at the beginning because it's so serene and you're just stuck with this stoic chef. They're always thinking, well, this movie might be a little bit slow going and what is Jen borrowing me? But every single person then tells me how shocked and delighted they were by what eventually happens. So please give it some time before you just completely turn it off because it's really worth it and I think you'll enjoy it. Our third film was one of my favorites the year it was made, The Tao of Steve, which came out in 2000, and that is Tao, T-A-O, of Steve. And you can find it right now on Crackle. Like Mostly Martha, it is another one that was directed by a woman. This film was written and directed by Jennifer Goodman, who wrote it alongside her sister Greer Goodman, who stars in the movie, and they based it on their college friend and writing partner, Duncan North. The film boasts just a triumphant, wildly charismatic performance by Donald Logue, who won the special jury prize at the Sundance Film Festival for it in 2000, and the movie itself was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize, so it was a huge word-of-mouth hit. It was also critically acclaimed. I remember David Letterman going on and on about it on his show, which was very cool at the time because I really enjoyed it and didn't really have that many people to talk about it with. I took my brother to see it at the theater, and then after that, we watched it just way too many times on DVD. The movie was shot in and around Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's beautiful. It's another one where the sun is shining a lot. You can kind of see a recurring theme there with Bowfinger and the hot desert area of breakdown. I am looking for some good summery films for you or ones that seem to work well in warm weather. And I think this is definitely one of them. It started as a personal odyssey piece about their friend Duncan North, who is an overweight, charming kindergarten teacher who had a enormous luck with the ladies. He was quite the serial seducer. But over their two years of writing it, it 
eventually morphed into a rom-com and that's what the movie is. Logue is so good in this picture. He just has that kind of fun, easygoing energy that just enhances the already highly quotable, sophisticated script about a kindergarten teacher named Dex, who has a special secret method for seducing the ladies, which he calls the Tao of Steve. The Steve in this case is Steve McQueen, but also Steve Garrett. He said James Dean is a Steve. Basically, Steve is more than a name. It is a state of mind. And he has all of these philosophical rules for what the Steve state of mind is all about. And it is just very, very funny. It kind of seems like it would play really interestingly after Swingers, which is another one about men on the prowl. And this sort of offers a little bit more of the female point of view in it as well. So I think those two would play extremely well together. In the movie, Sid, played by Greer Goodman, is an old college classmate of Dex's. They sort of knew each other. Their relationship will get more revealed as time goes on about exactly how well they know each other, if they know each other, that kind of thing. But Sid arrives in town. She makes sets for the opera. She plays the drums. She's just extremely accomplished and very cool and catches Dex's eye. So he starts thinking about how best to get through to her. One of Sid and Dex's mutual friends, a guy who knows all about Dex's theories, tells him don't pull Steve on Sid. And so he tries not to. He tries to just pursue her and it just slowly morphs into a charming, clever, and extremely likable movie that I can't recommend enough. So do check out The Tao of Steve. Talking about our next movie, Brian Grazer, who produced Bowfinger and produced this one, is quoted as saying, A script has to make me feel curious, and at no point can I feel complacent. In this story, it was the red herring aspect that I liked, not knowing why things were happening and later having everything revealed in such a satisfying and surprising way. These twists and turns really took the model of a heist film in a new and interesting direction. The movie he is talking about is none other than Inside Man and is now available to stream on Netflix from director Spike Lee. Lee is actually my reason for choosing Inside Man because his newest film, The Five Bloods, was just released on Netflix today. Inside Man is one of his more famous movies. It's extremely popular, but it's one that kind of gets overlooked when you're looking at his entire filmography and weighing which one is the best and what are his five best, you're usually going to find like Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, 25th Hour, Black Klansman, a couple other ones might pop in there. But Inside Man is his most just entertaining popcorn movie, I personally believe anyway. And it almost wasn't made by him. It was originally supposed to be made by Brian Grazer's longtime partner, Ron Howard, at Imagine Entertainment. 
which is under the umbrella of Universal Pictures. But Russell Crowe personally asked Ron Howard to direct Cinderella Man, and that pulled Ron off this film and freed it up for Spike Lee. Lee stepped up. He was very excited because Dog Day Afternoon is one of his favorite movies. You can find him talking about it all the time on various AFI specials or film specials. It's always exciting to hear Spike Lee talk about movies in general but especially Dog Day Afternoon, and this gave him the opportunity to make his own heist picture. But it's an interesting one because you see the point of view of characters you wouldn't expect in the genre, and it is a really great film. While preparing to make the movie and during the production, he screened tons of heist movies for his cast and crew, and the result is a very fresh, fast, and urgent movie that has some of Spike Lee's trademark multiple cameras and some of the shots we know from him so very well to tell this story, which opens with Clive Owen's character, Dalton Russell, sitting in an undisclosed location explaining how he committed the perfect robbery. He and his associates entered a bank dressed as painters, they used masks, and called each other Steve. No, not the Tao of Steve. This is a robbery, people. No, just kidding. But anyway, while taking hostages, they kept up the same charade of yes, Steve, no, Steve, in order so that nobody would hear them use one of their specific nicknames that could be put into a police database and get them caught. After they take hostages and they're still inside the bank, he has all of the people in the bank dress the same in the same scrubs that they're wearing. So that way, as you can predict, the police wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a robber and just a hapless victim who happened to be in the bank. While this is going on, Denzel Washington, who is an NYPD detective, shows up at the scene, and soon Clive Owen has to answer to Denzel Washington, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Willem Dafoe, and others, including Jodie Foster as a mysterious fixer who is hired to secure a rich man's safe deposit box and somehow insert herself into the proceedings. She is not a robber. She is not a cop. She is a character that you would normally never see in a situation like this. And Jodie Foster has an absolute ball. It's just great to see her doing something this fun. And in my eyes, this seems to be another excellent vehicle for her after Panic Room for David Fincher. The script is really ingenious. It was written by first-time screenwriter Russell Gerwitz, who, shockingly enough, followed up in Sideman later on with Righteous Kill, which reunited De Niro and Pacino for the first time since Heat, but that was awful. So... This was kind of the high point of Russell Gerwitz's career, kind of like Breakdown was the high point of Jonathan Mostow's career. So far, anyway, these people can, of course, always bounce back. 
It is unfortunate that Spike Lee was never able to make a follow-up film to Inside Man or a sequel to this because it does position Denzel Washington's detective in such a cool light that we would love to revisit him again. It kind of reminds me of the classic 1974 version of The Taking of Pelham 123 with Walter Matthau at the end of that movie, which is terrific. Of course, I mean, nobody is topping the end of Pelham 123, but anybody would have been glad to spend more time in the company of Matthau's character and Washington's character here. Interestingly enough, Denzel Washington starred a few years later in a remake of Pelham 123 and played the Mathau role, which despite not being the greatest movie, and it's hard to sort of follow in the footsteps of that classic heist movie, it's still worth seeing. And Tony Scott does a great job with his longtime leading man, Denzel Washington. It's interesting because Tony Scott and Spike Lee both use their muse, Denzel Washington, repeatedly throughout their careers. And what a muse. He's one of our greatest actors. So Inside Man is a movie that I'm sure you've seen before, but with the five bloods dropping and so many people having conversations again about Spike Lee's entire career and all of the great movies that he's delivered, don't overlook Inside Man because it's extremely well done. And how great is Clive Owen as well. He has kind of the thankless task of being the yin to the yang of the just extremely appealing, charismatic, lovable Denzel Washington, but Owen has this cool, detached calm that he uses throughout, and together they make a compelling study of contrasts, and even if you don't want to look that deeply into it, you're just hoping for some escapist fare, which is what we need right now. This is another one that's perfect mindless fun for a summer night. And now that it's back on the Netflix service, hopefully more people will join the bandwagon of those of us who just love this movie so much. So to recap this week, we had Breakdown from 1997, which is available on Showtime. 1999's Bowfinger is on Stars. Mostly Martha from 2001, you can find on Canopy. The Tao of Steve, which came out in 2000, appears on Crackle. And Inside Man from 2006 is now playing on Netflix. I hope some of these movies appealed to you, and I will catch you next time. Thanks so much. Take care, everybody. I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd, and this is Watch With Jen.